This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. My name is Ty Nguyen. In 1977, I became the first uh, Vietnamese in the American Marines. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of What was it like when you first got here? Because I understand you got here really early, way before uh, 1975. My mother brought us over here from Vietnam in 1967, April the 13th to be exact. It was very different. Uh, back in those days, there were no Vietnamese kids around. Uh, just my brother and I we went to a like a preschool daycare center. We're the only Vietnamese in the whole area. Matter of fact, I think we were the first one in the county to be kids coming there. Uh, it was very strange. You're leaving Vietnam with 80, 90 degree humid weather, and then you go to San Diego, which is still nice, but you know, very dry, a little bit colder, and nobody spoke your language. Yeah. We didn't have the, you know, things like ESL like they have now. You know, uh, back then they just throw you into the woods and learn. Learn English or sink or swim. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you nowadays? Being Vietnamese means you have to have cultural pride. Um, um, coming here from a different country as a foreigner, you know, coming here and adapting and being proud now to be an American and still keeping my Vietnamese culture, whether it's food, observation like New Year's, uh, you know, we had celebrate Tet at the same time you celebrate Christmas. And uh, to also uh, teaching my kids what it is to be Vietnamese and half uh, African-American, which is very special. Yeah, we'll get into that. It's a very interesting story. Now, what did your mom and dad do when you first arrived? My mom in Vietnam worked for the American Embassy. She worked in there and she found out there's a program to send Vietnamese uh, people to the United States to teach Vietnamese American soldiers. My mom being at that time trilingual, she spoke fluent French, fluent Vietnamese, and fluent English. So she took us two boys over there. Um, going back a little bit, my mom and dad got divorced right before that, which is almost unheard of you know, in Vietnam back in the 60s. So my dad was a soldier, and my mom just took two boys to America by herself. That takes a lot courageous. of courage. Yeah. Yes. That takes a lot of courage for a woman to, to leave back in those days, her, her husband and family uh, behind. Yeah, you know, you know, the Vietnamese culture back then, a very family-oriented for a woman just to pick up and take two kids in 1967 was almost unheard of. Uh, my aunt was over in America at that time, right before that. I think she was over here about a year. She was doing the same thing, teaching a Vietnamese-American soldier. And she's the one that I believe told my mom about the whole program and yeah, that's a, a pretty unique thing to have uh, these women lead the, the way such an early age to watch, you know, the strength of, of these women who didn't know the lay of the land here and to resettle here and to thrive and to raise two sons that uh, 
kick some butt, right? Yeah, she gave us a lot of, you know, what it is to be Vietnamese and to honor your culture and honor the discipline that's involved. And uh, she was very interesting. My mom always told us, you know, you speak English when you're at school and come home and we come home, she speaks Vietnamese to us. You know, so we kept our culture, the language, you know, what it is to be Vietnamese. Instead of, of just totally assimilating. Yeah, a lot of parents that would come after that in 1975 would push their kids to not speak any Vietnamese at all. So there's a quicker assimilation process. Yes, there is. Uh, she had foresight to know that you need your Vietnamese language. You know, fast forward to your adult life, have been bilingual is, is was a a plus for me in my career and working everything. You know, as a seven-year-old, not knowing that because seven years old, you just want to speak English because you want to talk to all the other kids. Yeah. It was very hard when you don't speak, you speak the language. And especially probably getting pushed around by, you know, these American kids who, you know, seeing somebody who's different, who can't speak the language, just having that foresight to retain the Vietnamese and pick up a new language like English is in a incredibly amount of foresight because now that we are 50 years almost 50 years later we see sort of like a lot of the parents making that mistake 40 years ago when they were raising their kids to really push them into english only households in those days and me uh being a little kid i remember getting a lot of fights because you know kids are laughing i just assumed they're laughing at me you know whether they were or not you know because you yeah. didn't understand what they were talking about and they're looking at you and they're laughing you're not sure. You're not telling. You're not sure if they're telling a joke or talking about you. And the fight was on. Yeah. Remember, Miss Elsie Peterson used to grab me and try to convey with me when my mom came and picked us up. That they weren't laughing at you. They were just talking, telling your stories and joke. And you know, for me to basically cool my temper, you know, because uh, you know, it can't be just a fight on every time you hear somebody laugh. But you know, as a young kid, it's also frustrating because you don't understand what these kids are saying. Now, what led you to joining the Marine Corps? I was going through high school, and at that time, we also brought a lot of, my mom brought a lot of, sponsored a lot of our relatives over here in 75. It was total chaos at the house. She was trying to bring over and sponsor people living in our house, you know, two or three families. Um, we didn't have money for college or anything because on paper, it looks like we made a lot of money, decent money, right? Uh, like middle class. But in real life, it's not really because you know, you're paying for two or three different families coming over from Vietnam. And, you know, you, of course, when that those days, you had no receipts for things like that. You just pay for it. When they came over here, you sponsored them. You know, you pay for their living wages. You pay for their food, whatever you had to do. So in 77, uh, I decided to join the Marine Corps. I started going to service to pay for school. I was doing a little research on it. Uh, I figured if I go into United States military, I could get money for school. And also, when I went down to talk to the recruiter, uh, they said also you get the US citizenship at the same time, you know, if you could complete your tour and got an honorable discharge and everything like that. Um, so instead of going to college, I sat my mom down. I was in 11th grade and I, I had enough credit to graduate early. I go, I need you to sign these papers because you were under, under 18 and for me to go to the Marine Corps. And she kind of looked at me with those, you know, Kind of, you know, sideways eyes, you know, the sideways eyes moms give to you. Considering we just came from a war-torn country. With, yeah. you know, she had deaths in the family for the war. Here's a kid wants to join the service. And she was mentioning, don't you want to join the Coast Guard or Navy or something? Why do you want to join the Marines? Because, you know, being a Marine, you're on the front lines the whole time. But, you know, I told her, trust me, I, I'm going to do what I need to do. Um, 
And she did. She knew that I had a pretty square you know, level head up on her shoulder. I said, I'm going to go to college afterwards, but I want to get this Marine Corps enlistment in there and then start my life. And that, that's what I did. You know, my mom had to do that with me too. That was a trajectory, a shared trajectory that you and I have. At 17, my mom signed the papers. And both my mom and dad were like, wait a minute, 17 years ago, we had just left a war-torn country, so you would never have to join the military. So I'm sure it's like mind-boggling for this previous generation to sign papers for us to join. I mean, it's not like we join at 18 where you just join and you sign your own papers. Right. Both of our parents had to sign at 17 and i did the same thing that you did i had college credits to or high school credits to to graduate at 16. by the time i turned 17 i was like a year in to community college and they were just like really you're gonna throw that all away to join the military yeah so my mom had college aspirations for me you know? yeah don't get me wrong i wasn't no straight a student but i had enough to get into college uh but the way i had my grades i wasn't gonna get those full ride academic scholarship how to get like the cow grants, and, you know, yeah. a hook and crook here and there, some financial aid, but it wasn't enough for college. I didn't want to, people say, you're kind of old for your wives for your age. I didn't want to be leaving college. Yeah, I got this fancy piece of paper, but I'm thousands in the debt. Um, so I figured the service is the best way. And I go, if I'm going to do the service, I might as well join the toughest one to give me my, you know, to force me to discipline and to give me the challenge. And that's funny when I went to my recruiter in Oakland, there's a two-story building, it's armed forces, pre-union, not telegraphs. You walk in, downstairs, the Army and the, uh, the Marines, upstairs, the Navy and Coast Guard. First officer walk in with a guy named Staff Sergeant Bill Squires. He looked at me, I said, hey, I'm here to want to join the service. He goes, where are you from? From Berkeley. He goes, oh, uh, Navy and Coast Guard is upstairs. <laughs> I go, no, I'm here to join the Marine Corps. I remember he looked at me. He was wearing glasses. He took off his glasses. Let me see your ID. <laughs> he looked at me. I looked at him. He go, and I looked at his uh, campaign ribbons. I mean, his ribbons. And I go, oh, he did two tours of Vietnam. You know, you get the yellow ribbon thread. You see the two stars because you know he did two tours. And he kind of got like a shock factor. I remember him calling his, uh, the LT at the command center in Alamigos. You're not going to believe this LT. There's a kid here that wants to join the Marine Corps. He's from Berkeley. He goes, check this out. He's Vietnamese, too. And I could hear the LT yell in the background, no way, I'll be right down. You know? And the lieutenant came in and did the same thing. Looked at my ID. Are you and then you know, looked at me up and down. Are you born here in Vietnam? Are you mixed? Or I go, no, I'm Vietnamese. I was born in Saigon. <laughs> I remember going through um, back in 93, and some of my drill instructors had, um, well, the company commander or the the first sergeant were, they did tours in Vietnam. And it was kind of, it was just 17 years later or, you know, 18, 19 years before that these young, when they were younger, they were in, the, they were in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And so getting there was a very confusing thing for me because sometimes Americans at the time couldn't really distinguish for some reason, culturally, they just didn't understand that or they, they were just so ignorant that they didn't realize that there were two camps, the, the, you know, the, the, the Vietnamese that were fighting in black pajamas in Vietnam and the other side, which is the South Vietnamese Army, and we were the, the product of the, of the South. And they couldn't, a lot of the drill instructors at the time couldn't understand that or the kids that were going through the Marine Corps with me, they didn't understand like there's these two things and I can't imagine you going in in 77 which is like literally just a few years before that we were like at 
all-time war. war with you know with with the with the with the same country so how did that play out in boot camp and your time in the service it was very interesting and it's kind of shocking because i walk in there and uh my drill instructor, two out of the three were Vietnam vets, right? Uh, remember, you had three drill instructors. Yeah. You had the primary one and two secondaries. Uh, senior the primary was a senior sergeant, you know. Yeah. He's the one that barked more orders than anybody else. And he had three campaigns in Vietnam, you know, two rolls of ribbons, you know. And I remember the first thing I did in the middle of the bus, I remember my, my uh, staff sergeant, Bill Sparrow, my crew goes, hey, when make sure you sit in the middle of the bus. Get that haircut of yours a little bit more short than what it was. You know, I keep, I grew up in Berkeley, man. You know, so my hair was long down to my shoulder. You know, I was the kid that used to ride on a motorcycle, a big old orange T-shirt that said "Question Authority." So you know, a little Wall Street. Typically not Vietnamese back then. You know, I was a motorcycle rider. I hung out with my friends. And, you know, I was a gearhead. You know, not into the academia like most Vietnamese back then were. You know, um, the drill instructor comes on the bus. The first guy comes on. He's yelling and screaming. For, you know, everybody get the F off the bus and yelling. And he goes, where's that Nugent guy? I'm going, who's, who's Nugent? I'm not thinking about it. He goes, Nugent, where's Nugent? I'm not saying nothing. Man. He goes, he spelled my name. He goes, me. I go, didn't you hear me call you the first three times? I go, no, my name is Nguyen. He goes, no, it's Nugent. <laughs> and then we got to that, you know, the first thing you do off that bus, you stand on those little, you know, markers. With the footprints, remember those things? So you stand yeah. on the markers with the footprints. You put your feet, your left foot on one print, you put your right foot, you're just screaming these orders at you. And they might kind of gaggle you into the haircut, you know, the barber, and they got these barbers lined up in rows. And as my turn comes out, the girl starts going, I want to cut his hair personally. <laughs> I go, why am I getting picked on? They told me to sit in the middle of the bus and keep my mouth shut. I should be able to blend in, you know, not as a kid. And not realize they know who you are before you cut. They already got the, your name, but all the 80 guys you joined with. And then from there, they razzed me through boot camp, but then uh, they pushed me really hard doing different things. Uh, but towards the end, I realized why. When you know, when they knew you were going to graduate, like the last week of boot camp, mostly it's spit shine and increasing your, you know, putting all your drills in. The senior drills are here. We pushed you hard because we fought with American Marines. They were the best, I mean, Vietnamese Marines. They, and they told me they were the best fighters that were ever fought with in their whole career. These are, you know, pretty senior Marines. Um, and he said, we expect you to do no less than make your country proud. Because now you're an American Marine. And, you know, you're going to be an American Marine in a week if we pass you. <laughs> but then it was kind of neat at the end because I got to meet the, you know, the majors in charge, the captain, officers that other guys didn't get to meet because they didn't want to see this Vietnamese that made it through the Marine Corps, you know, uh, which was like unheard of back then. Uh, because in boot camp, they told me, you know when you're the first Vietnamese in American Marines. I didn't know that. I mean, how, how did they prove that? How did you know that that was like a real... You said they researched the, the paperwork. That's why it took them a long... You know, back then, they didn't have computers like we now. You know, they had to just research it. Remember, Marine Corps archives back then wasn't like now when you you know, press the send button and away you go. And most of the stuff was hand uh, filed with microfishes and stuff like that. They, they went back to the Marine Corps headquarters and they found out. Uh, I found that out about, I don't know, 10 weeks into boot camp, somewhere around there. I thought I got in trouble. I got called into the drill instructor's office. Yeah. And they yelled at me, why did you tell me you're the first Vietnamese Marine? I go, 
I can't tell you something I didn't know. <laughs> I'm thinking of myself, you know? Yeah. Now, yeah. now your, your uh, upbringing in Berkeley, um, there's a lot of, and I don't mean, there's no pun intended, there's a lot of color there because uh, Berkeley is a very diverse town. There's a lot going on. And it's not typically a town where you think produces military men or women. None. It's not San Diego. It's not Coronado. It's not, you know. Not uh, Texas. Not Texas. <laughs> You're not getting, uh, you know, these corn-fed Marines that come out of the fields of Kentucky. You have a very intellectual and very diverse uh, exposure to, you know, I, we talked about this before, but the Delphonics and Motown at the time. And I can't imagine what the cultural sort of the differences of the intellectual set from Berkeley and that town and then being in the Marine Corps and seeing such rigidity, how did that, how did you mitigate sort of like the differences in that world? Well, I was blessed to be born, uh, raised in Berkeley, born in Vietnam, raised in Berkeley most of my childhood life. The reason why is Berkeley is very diverse. It was diverse before diverse being a cool thing. You know, it was just the way the town was a melting pot. It, one, it was a university town with UC Berkeley there. You know, the home of all the political strife and Vietnam War, anti-war, which I saw yeah. growing up, you know. I experienced a lot of that, you know, firsthand seeing the demonstration and some of the riots and everything. But Berkeley, the way Berkeley School District in those days was very free thinking. They never taught you about, there was no black pride, Asian pride, none of that stuff. You were just a student and you're mixing this class with Asians, uh, blacks, whites, uh, every other color in between. Nobody really looked at color. You look at people, that are your friends because they're nice to you or you're nice to them, you just click. Um, it was a very special kind of upbringing that you never had, you know, anywhere else. And growing up in Berkeley, I thought everything like that was normal. I thought everybody was mixed, you know, not knowing the rest of the United States. It was a little bit different in, six, uh, in the 70s. Uh, and it taught you to be tolerant all the traces and not be distinct because you were totally immersed in it. Uh, you didn't think of any of it. Uh, like I grew up mostly in a black community. I mean, my house, but you know, my mom had us raised up in middle school and junior and high school. A block, we were literally the only Asian in the whole neighborhood, but nobody made me feel uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, it was no big deal. You know, we moved in, oh, that's an Asian kid. But I knew why when I lived in that neighborhood, I can't get in trouble because they know where, you know, if anybody say the Asian kid did it, they know, they know who cops came to, you know, the cops did. Uh, but we, but with that in mind, uh, it made me a freak thinker because, yeah, look at in the 70s, a lot of Vietnamese that I knew as I grew up, I saw some Vietnamese come over in 75, especially in high school. You started seeing a trickle of Vietnamese coming in kids. They're very rigid, very Vietnamese, Vietnamese, Vietnamese. They hung out with only Vietnamese. They only th did things with Vietnamese. They all had a little, how do you call it, a stereotype, you know, very book bookish. And, you know, they looked at me like I was the wild thing. <laughs> You know, even the, you know, the Vietnamese girls back then looked at me with a side eye, because you're not Vietnamese. <laughs> you know, I hung out with my friends, and you know, I was like, I was a gearhead. I played soccer, and you know, I did my own thing. Hang out with the boys. This, no Vietnamese at all. This colorful past of, of, of growing up in Berkeley and then joining the Marine Corps, that led you eventually to becoming a police officer. You know, it is something that, I feel like today when we think of the police force and we think of 
the BLM movement and we think of all the racial chaos that's happening uh, in the last few years, we could use a lot of people with the background like yours, but that's not really this, the, the, the luxury that we have in the United States. We have a lot of you know, officers that have uh, very little to no diversity in their upbringing that maybe is a reason why we've landed in such hot water. I mean, what kind of experience did you f go through as a police officer with people around you who perhaps didn't understand that the challenges of, of diversity was an important thing? Well, you know, I had been a retired law enforcement officer. I did 35 years working in law enforcement. And when I came out in 85, you know, it all starts at the beginning and who the, the city agencies hire. Every city gets a choice of what kind of officer they want to represent that city. If it's a city that's really going out there and trying to find police officer that represents the people in their city and have a mindset that's very open, but that's up to the chief of police and the HR to hire those kind of people. But if you have a police chief that's very close-minded, he came from the old schools of the 50s and 60s and 70s where they didn't do that, then you're gonna have a product of these officers that we have today. And I also see, I also see officers now that were different from when I was in. When I first came in 85, very few officers went to college. Most police officers, not that they were dumb or they couldn't get in, it's just not their chosen path. You know? Most of the chosen paths of the officers back in those days was uh, you come out of high school, most of us joined the military because over half my people that I joined that day were all ex-military. Then you go have an adult life doing different things, then you apply for a policeman. And most uh, young men that did not go to college, they went out and worked in a field, whatever they were doing, you know, whether they're construction, uh, carpentry, whatever, they made a living. And now they're in their mid-20s with a life, you know, they've never had adult experience, they dealt away from mom and dad's cocoon, you know, and went in there and found out how other people live their life and work in there. So you have more of a cultural awareness. Then you become a policeman. And when you're a policeman as a young rookie cop, you 85, don't get me wrong, there were racist cops that I worked with that. But I was hired by a very special chief who had a forward vision, a guy named Robert McGinnis, phenomenal man. Uh, he was the chief of San Leandro. I met him first in the police academy. He wasn't my first chief. I worked at, I started out in East Palo Alto, we were like, you know, war time, you know, they, they call it the ghettos, inner city, a high crime rate city. Uh, but I went, when I went to San Leandro, uh, he found out I was looking for a, a different lateral movie. He recruited me. And he called me in there and he wanted uh, an officer that's going to represent this. You know, he's forward thinking. He wanted more minority officer in the city of San Leandro and wanted to represent with the way the community was evolving. So his uh, mindset, not that I knew anybody, it's kind of interesting, but, you know, every seemed like every third of us that he hired and got the job of minorities. And that made up the makeup of San Leandro. So you don't hear San Leandro being sued or. Mm. Police brutality, you know, none of that sort of stuff. Um, we had a different vision of what a, a law enforcement officer, at least my friends, and not that I was close minded to people. I, you, you know who the bad guys, good guys are. Uh, with the Chief McGinnis, he kind of weeded out those kind of racist or ignorant kind of guys, you know, as the years went on. He didn't hire them. So they're going to retire out. Now, do you see racial things? Yes, I mean, police officer or you know, 
part of the human race and you know yeah. they have their prejudice and you know what they think they're opinionated you know what they think about everything so you're gonna have some issues uh yeah, when, when overall yeah it's different from what it is now and today when they hire a police officer as i saw the years come on the new thing everybody's pushing everybody to have a ba and aa as soon as you got a ba you can get hired um i think that's wrong because being a policeman you got to be more culturally smart street smart not to deal with people you don't need to be a scientist or an MBA to be a policeman you know what i mean uh you don't need to graduate from harvard yale nice to have but you can't put all your eggs in one basket make education the number one idea because police work is dealing with people um, but this is ironic though this is very ironic to hear that the modern police force requires in education. education you would think that with all of the requirements of education that police officers today would be much more open-minded and flexible and pliable to a new way of thinking a diverse way of thinking but you know, look at the education though now you got a kid that comes out of high school he comes from any town usa he's under his mom and dad's rule, right he's getting paid for he's never had i hate to say break a sweat his whole life he goes to college, he's getting paid for to go to college. I mean, somebody's paying for his college, mom and dad, or taking out loans. He never had to go out there and work with people. So he goes in an academic uh, situation. He's thinking about his books. You don't really see people, you know, yeah, you see different people on a college campus. But you're sitting there, you're studying, trying to graduate. You're not really mixing a lot of people. And so they come out at 22 years old, they got this thing called a BA. Or BS, they think they know more than anybody else. They got that chip. I got the ABS. I'm gonna be smarter than the other policeman that's gonna come. I'm gonna be a police chief in four years, you know. Uh, <laughs> and so the flavor of the month with these HR guys, we're paying these guys an obscene amount of money. That's what they look at. We're paying them the same amount of money as we pay our city engineers, you know, our city uh, you know, major management setup. So why are we out of requiring education from these police officers like we have required education from uh, the engineers, the city managers and stuff. Um, education is good, don't get me wrong. The, the thing about police work to me, education shows you you are disciplined, you can memorize, you can take orders, and you have your life together. Because you gotta have your life together to study, you know, write essays and to pass tests and to graduate and have the discipline to stay there for four or five years, whatever it is. That's all education really for me for law enforcement. You think about it, you're a street cop, you graduate in history. Is that really going to help you? You you, well, require, you graduate in engineering. Is that really going to help you as well, a you law enforcement with, officer? Well, you think with history, though, it, there is a potential of it giving you a deeper understanding of human beings, right? Or kid who... It is and it isn't because a lot of these guys that go into police work, they're going in there, I'm going to get me a four-year degree because I want a job. You know, they're going to take the, the, the you know, easy course. But most of these cats go in there and they take classes like criminal justice. And I mean, you're not going to become a lawyer, so why do you think, oh, because it's easy, because it's more job-related, they think that's going to get them hired. So they got these degrees in criminal justice law for four years, and that's all they know is the law. They don't know people. Is that, you don't know the difference? You know law, you don't know yeah. people. You know the books. So you come out with this fancy piece of paper you can put on, you know, and say, you got to hire me because I'm a, you know, uh, I got my BA. And also when you're doing that, a lot of these guys have clean record and never got exposure in negative. So 
the police chief go, no, this is a perfect candidate. He's got a BA. He has no driver. He got no arrest record, no incident. I go, well, he doesn't have any record because he's never did anything except for go to school. He never went out there and tested the hot waters of life, you know. And no, he's never had to make these life's choices for yourself. Um, or maybe put himself in mind. I got a little trouble. Did you walk away from it? You know, um, he's never experienced life as an adult. He went from mom to go to college. They became a policeman. Now you're 22 years old, and you expect this guy to be given a gun, a book that he can incarcerate somebody, put somebody away in jail, deprive them of their liberty, and also take somebody's life. And he has no experience, or you know, a lot of these guys have no uh, life experience, which is very important. I mean, I can tell you that because I used to train officers. I was a field training officer too as a policeman. And I talked to some of these boy wonders coming out, and they had a hard time on the street. Okay, so so wait a minute. So you spent decades in the police work and now there is an ability for you to actually have a place where you can actually critique the sort of the formation of a police officer. But now we're at a place in history of the United States where police work is not it's not uh it's far from perfect. But Knowing what you just said, how can I as a citizen get in the mindset of doing the right thing for it? Like if I was somebody who's planning at the city level and I hear defund the police and I think that it's a broken, how do I get in and change it? I don't, I don't mean me, but how does society go in and tweak this idea of picking police officers with a level of, of humanity and humility to really make a change in society and the way we police. The matter from the chiefs, the matter from the city, the matter from the state to where you live. You live in that city, the matter from the police chief. We, you, we want you to hire and recruit police officers that makes up the population, you know? Uh, and hold them accountable and teach them these things of cultural differences and cultural diversity. Uh, at the same time, teach them what it is to be a law enforcement, really what it is to be a law enforcement officer. It ain't the, what you see on TV. You're not the gun to them. You shoot five bad guys in one day. No. Police work sometimes is very mundane and boring. You know? uh, Probably most you of the time. Teach right? I'm sorry? Probably most of the time is boring and mundane, right? It's like this way. You guys, it's... 55 minutes of boring by five minutes of sheer terror every day. Sheer <laughs> adrenaline rush. You, know, you got to be a little bit of an adrenaline drug junkie, which I am, you know. Um, I still am, but anyways. But you got to have a, an officer that goes out there and really knows his community. I mean, or be part of a community and came to work with you. The best police officers I've known in my whole life, I can name only a few of them. I mean, really the total package. The guys come from everyday life. Um, they didn't have no BA. But they had that BA life experience. They went out to the workforce and did their thing. And they became a police officer in their, you know, not their early 20s, but towards their mid-20s. You know, they're seeing what it is out there, the hard, you know, like a regular Joe working and actually working next to different people, whatever you're a construction worker, a garbage man, you know, whatever, a carpenter. And they went out and work and they came to a police officer. And they have a, it seemed like they have a very well understanding. They don't get in trouble. But you also have to look at all these other states that what's their criteria hiring police officers under and their training. Um, you hear all these police officers doing horrific, horrible things, and, and I'm 
you know, I've seen it. It's, it's sad to see it. But who are their supervisors? Who brought these guys to be police officers in these states? You don't hear too many from California, right? When you see major, uh, the last thing we ever saw that was really horrific was Rodney King. How many years ago was that? Yeah, that was in the 90s, 92. Yeah, I you're talking about 37 years ago. Yeah. California evolved and changed. It had to. But why is it? But, you know, the other states didn't take seat. You know, you notice these states are still getting horrific like that thing that just happened in Memphis recently. Yeah. That should have never happened with those specialized. They were black uh, officers, too. Yeah. It was just brutal people being brutal. Yeah. Race had nothing to do with that. That's just five bad guys that had that badge and gun and it just went, you know, crazy. But Memphis hired, right? I mean, Memphis hired, they passed Memphis's test, whatever their vision of a police officer is. And some of those guys are when reading the paper, I'm not sure it was true or false, but they had baggages coming from other departments. So why would you hire somebody's bad seat? You know? I mean That's pretty crazy. That's to me, it's just insane. It happens. Some guys slip through the crack, but some of those guys have some pretty disciplinary problems. You have that, you know, you as the background officer that you do backgrounds, or you as the police chief, lights and sirens ought to be going off your head. Do we really need that to this guy? Do we really need it? I mean, do we, are we really that short? And I know that the department I came from, we'd rather be short and have guys work extra time and hire some guys to come back and uh, cause some, you know, embarrassment or even worse, you know, dishonestly or be having criminal behaviors. Um, I'm going to ask a simple question, but I know the answer is not going to be as simple. It should be probably a complex answer. Is the police world getting better or worse from this point on, from today? Is Do you feel like we're heading in the right direction with all of the corrections, like, you know, defund the police and, you know, all this BLM movement stuff? Is it getting better or is it actually getting worse every day? Well, only, that's a multiple fault question. It should be getting better, but the thing about it, you have these defunding the police movement, and people that say that with such you know cavalier talk, just defend them. Well, when you're defunding police and you take a third of your police force off the street or you don't hire and your city's not short of law enforcement officer, then you come around and complain, why is crime rate going up? Why am I having more robberies and murders? I go, well, you have less cops on the street yeah. to police the the people uh, and time and time has shown again just a, a social experience that happened a few years ago in Seattle when they had that chop zone no police in there look how people turn and they turn into total chaos you know ripping and robbing and killing people with no consequence because they don't know there's no law enforcement route law enforcement with defunding the police I don't agree with that how about educating that not only educating the police off educating their superiors and what to look for to hire a policeman, you know? Every state is different. Unfortunately, every state is different. Every state has a different police officer standard of training. I wish there was all one standard of training. Just like when you join Marine Corps, there's only one Marine Corps, right? There's right. one set of rules. One. Whether you're from Hawaii or Florida or New York or California, we go under the same, same thinking. Same thinking. Whether you're a Marine from the backwoods or you're a Marine from the a city slicker, you go in there, you put that, green on you're the same person with a name like maybe that has to happen have a national police standards and training i mean all these 50 states are gonna cry you know you could have a basic standard and training and modify suit your state's needs for different people but they don't every state does their own thing every city does their own thing and that's the that's the it'll never change unless there's some kind of guidelines it won't be because 
people are stubborn. Uh, a lot of people get in power because I know everything. I don't need you to tell me what to do. You know, that's our thinking in America. You know, I, I you know, I look at back now being 63 years old, maybe we should have. I think in more and more, I, I would love to have a national standard and training the way we do business. Get every leader from every police officer standard and training program, all 50 states, because we all have standard and training programs. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the federal level, like FBI, DEA, they're all the same. I right? come out the Why same. Why can't it be state? Uh, Quantico, you know, they uh, all push out the same kind of people. But every state wants their independence, which is bad because you look at that and you look at the way uh, Milwaukee is. We don't train the way Milwaukee is. You know, when those guys kill, you know, kill that guy. Uh, the things he did, you wouldn't last in California. How does a guy like Shawran? I think it said Derek Shawran. Is that mm -hmm. the guy's name? How did he still became an officer 27 years had all those multiple complaints? He had like dozens of complaints yeah. of use of force and you know different way to treat people. Not even that. How does he become a training officer with all that? Oh my gosh, you know. I'm not sure I can't speak for that city, but our city, you know, and even cities around me, you gotta be pretty squared away to be a training officer, like no problems. Cause they don't want you to pass your view of the world yeah. onto another, you know, cadet. A rookie, you know, and having do bad things. Training officers will bring the best out and teach you how life and how police work. Yeah. And you have to take it very seriously. Doctors take Field of Greens for their own health. Here's Dr. Ryan Green to explain. We're like you, too much fast food, not enough exercise. That's why I take Field of Greens. The fruits and vegetables in Field of Greens support my heart, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism for weight loss. And Field of Greens promises your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. Get 15% off with promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. That's promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. Product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You, you spent a lot of time with the Vietnamese community, organized crime sort of areas. Did, can you talk about that? I talked a little bit about it. Um, in 1994, I was a motorcycle policeman. That was my life track. You know, I'm, I'm a motorcycle fanatic. That's my thing. I've been riding bikes since I was 15 and a half. Uh, my friend didn't own a car until I was 25. But anyway, I'm shooting radar at San Leandro. I get on the radio. You need to respond to the station. There's two FBI agents uh, want to talk to you. I'm going, oh, my God, I did something wrong. Usually when the FBI comes to talk to you, you means you violated somebody's civil rights. You're going to be walking away in handcuffs or something, you know. Uh, I mean, that's what the FBI knew when they come to the police department that I knew. You know, I was a young cop. Not really young, but young and divorced. Uh, I've only been on that time, but uh, about eight years. I think it was about eight years I was on, you know. So I come in there and I go to my chief's office. First thing I said, am I in trouble? <laughs> Do I need uh, my legal defense fund? And the chief started laughing. And the FBI guys are like, confused. what are you talking about? The chief goes, no, Ty, sit down. I got an offer for you. And these guys, these two guys came in. One was a supervisor agent in charge. The other one was a regular special agent. He goes, we want you to work. Uh, and get into these Vietnamese gambling halls in San Jose and you're Vietnamese. And I heard that you've done undercover before. I goes, yes, I did uh, multiple stints with Oakland Police Department uh, working, tracking their organized Vietnamese crimes in Oakland. You know, I did little stints here and there by that time, uh, like a week or two at a time, you know, month, no long-term case. They wanted to borrow me for three months. Uh, I go, what do you think about it? I go, it sounds like a, a fun thing to do, you know? My chief being the wise man that he is, he goes, well, go home and talk to your wife about it first. Tell her what the, what's it, it involves. And, you know, uh, once they, those guys left, he goes, really go talk to Jan because 
I know you, and it is not going to last three months. What do you mean, cheater? Goes, I know you. He's going to last a lot longer. You know, him being the wiser man than I was. And he was right. I went and I talked to Jan and my wife. She goes, you know what? If you don't do it now, it's going to be could have, would have, should have. Wonderful woman. We'll talk about that in a bit, you know. And he said, I took care of the kids. The kids were, yeah, I got it back then. Gosh, my, my daughter was like barely, you know, out of her toddler. Right before kindergarten started, my son was like a year and a half. You know, no, about a year when I started, you know, barely walking and, you know, still sucking on his pacifier. She said, I'll take care of the kids things and you go run. Because if you don't do that 20 years from now, you're going to go coulda, woulda, shit. Yeah. And away I went. I went with these guys and they hooked me up with the, one of their uh, informants. This lady introduced me to a bunch of guys and they took a liking to me. I took a liking to them. And we did this huge uh, Asian organized crime case from uh, dealing guns, dealing with uh, alien smuggling when the Chinese are coming into uh, California. There was a, a group of Chinese back then that uh, came on like a, one of those uh, freighters. And they dropped them off right at uh, Fort Fort Point in San Francisco. They all ran into the Presidio. Um, there just happened to be at that time a bunch of uh, state police and fe fe a federal police around there. Just coincidentally, not really because we told them, you know, hey, man, these guys are getting dropped off. But you guys got to do it in a certain way where none of us got, you know, none of us get exposed. I did that one, and then these guys really liked me. What we did was we hooked up with a um, a guy named Leonard Bali out of Intel uh, Security. He used to be a former police officer. And what we're going to do is we're going to get Intel chips, which was like the hot thing back then. You know, you can go back then in the 90s, but, you know, nobody, there's no laptop. Uh, personal computers just coming into vogue. Uh, they had these chips called, I think, Intel 44. And then there was Intel uh, Pentium chips, and these were hot item chips. He would give me chips like hundreds of thousands and all sorts of use as a bargaining thing. Damn. I used them, and I was like the guy that was uh, supposed to be doing these mastermind of stealing chips and doing robberies when they came out of Chandler, Arizona, where they were being manufactured. And I would trade his trips for drugs. So wait a minute. The Intel would provide the federal, like federal to give you chips to make these deals. Yeah, because Intel was losing so many chips uh, being stolen. And so it's good for them too. Let's stop some of these pirating and stop up these jacking of our chips. How, you know, and we can get to these organized crime guys, hit them more accounts. They're not gonna be, they're gonna think twice about uh, stealing chips. So Leonard, he just gave us money chips as we want. So I'll take a box of Intel and I'll go trade for drugs. I would trade for guns and everybody thought I was a big man about making these big Intel chips uh, for robberies, you know, uh, and coming up these $20,000 deals in three days and nobody goes to jail, but, uh, which was, you know, only the federal government get away. But yeah. most local cops, you know, we deal with a couple hundred dollars and you get it busted, right? So when you're dealing tens of thousands of dollars with the drugs and Intels and guns and everything, and everybody's walking, they think you're gold. I mean, you're the real deal. It got to a point where we did it nationally, where we're going back East Coast dealing with the triads. And then I got involved in the introduction to dealing the big score of China white heroin, the real heroin that comes in uh, a unit of heroin, like a little uh, square package you know, wrapped up in banana leaves with the, the dragon head stamping. It really came from the, the Golden Triangle. Mm. Uh, I dealt with a guy named Tan Dan, Tan. Black time because he's very dark skinned Vietnamese guy. 
And I got introduced to him and he took a liking to me. I took a liking to him and he had me deal. The first deal was a $20,000 heroin deal in Quincy, Massachusetts, the middle of Quincy where, where he had me, there was only Asians and blacks in that area. They were very smart to meet him at this little coffee shop. They had me sit there for two or three hours waiting for this guy because he's outside and little I know he's across, across the street checking the area out. You know, you see a white guy go through it, he's got a cop, you know. So they left me alone. I was on my cell phone. Basically, they trust me to go in there by myself, my gun. And, and I met this guy and did a $20,000 deal and nobody got arrested. The feeling you have on the first undercover assignment, mm -hmm. I can imagine how scary it would be as a motorcycle cop to all of a sudden go, I mean, into these dens of, of, of people, criminals. I mean, what kind of training prepares you for that sort of activity to go from a regular cop into this sort of undercover life? Was that that much training? What I did when I first came into there, I met a guy named Willie Reagan at that time. They told me to go be with Willie Reagan, FBI agent. He's very special. Uh, Willie Reagan, back in the day, did undercover and uh, went after organized crime guys and did that Weatherman case with those radicals in New York and stuff. So I go, how the heck does an FBI agent go from the rest of familiar Mexican mafia to dealing with the Weatherman, which is a radical group? And so the guy I hung out with, Tim Hot, my special agent, who's my co-partner, you know, in charge of this case. When you meet Willie Reagan, it explains you everything. Go meet him in Fishman's Wharf. He's driving such and such car, and he knows what you're driving. And just meet him at a certain point. I go, I go there. Here comes this guy and walks up to me. He's carrying a man purse. Uh, <laughs> he's got a Hawaiian shirt on. He's got his white hair. He looks like Santa Claus with his beard. He's wearing, uh, what do you call those, uh, Birkenstocks shoes hi i'm willie reagan I go, I go you are you know got a little overweight and we started talking and we sat and had lunch for about an hour this guy was so interesting little i realized he's like famous in the fbi community as the number one undercover they've ever had because you know? fbi back in those days didn't do undercover you know they just weren't into it you know the fbi with uh, their director before the new director, uh, what's his name? I forgot his name now. The one I was the director for decades. He wanted all his FBI to be, you know, suit and tie, be a certain height, all white Americans, you know, and had that, that FBI cut, you know. Yeah. When he left, the FBI changed his, you know, tactics early because, you know, we're a suit and tie with a white shirt and tie. You can't get in here everywhere. No way. Yeah. Work that way. So Willie Reagan talked to me and then I came back down to, uh, Tim Hot, about a day later, his supervisor got a call and Willie Reagan go, this kid's gonna do just fine. There's no amount of training. It's gonna get what Ty knows, personal. And away I went, it was OJT, you know, on the job training. Yeah. Now, what about, what was about Willie Reagan that made him very interesting? He had just a way that he can blend into a crowd and he didn't look like an FBI agent. You gotta look at a guy that looked like Santa Claus in a Hawaiian shirt. That doesn't look like a, a police officer, you know, and wearing Birkenstocks, you know, for God's sakes, you know, dirty, ripped up jeans and carrying a man first. That is not cop. <laughs> it definitely doesn't look like an FBI. It's just the way his mannerism and his knowledge of people. You sit down with Willie Wagon and within minutes, you could have sworn you've known this guy all your life. Mm, familiar. Just going to, you know, he has all those personality, you know, 
that everybody likes. And that's how he gets in the thing. And then uh, he says, he could do fine. And you know, as the time goes on, he says, why don't you come back and teach undercover at the FBI Academy? Oh, shit. Because you're, yeah. guys like you, you know, after you know, guys like you're big, Phil Pump, he goes, guys like you come around once in a lifetime. You know? Wow. We can't get guys that can get smooth people walk in and just be totally friendly. Just like when I talk to you the first time at phone. Yeah. You know? I'm easy go. And so as we went on, the progress of the case got bigger and bigger. We wanted to make it nationwide. And we were dealing with computer chips, China wide heroin, alien smuggling, illegal uh, making a driver's license in California. You know, the Vietnamese were very, uh, how do you call it, entrepreneurial. You know, uh, they got involved in everything as long as they made money. You know, being Vietnamese, you know, it's all about money. It wasn't like, oh, we only deal with heroin. We only deal with, you know, such and such. Whatever made money, a lot of money, they were all. Did you ever did you ever stop to think or analyze why these men, these Vietnamese men, were going sideways, were going wayward with crime? Did you ever go anthropologically speaking or from an ethnographic point of view, why is this happening? It's the Vietnamese society, you know, Vietnamese culture is the more money made, to me, you must be, you know, well-established. You did a good life and, you know, you're very, you know, well-off. It's all about money. You know, knowing Vietnamese, but at least my generation, it's all about money. What, what are you for living? How much money? It's all about prestige and money and living in a big house. At least the Vietnamese came over to America, you know, that I, that my, my generation. I remember the first time I met a Vietnamese girl, seeing that, you know, in going as an adult, they don't ask me, how are you doing? What are you doing? Go, how much you make? I'm like, that's a hell of a question. Two minutes into a conversation. What do you do for a living? They want the doctor, the status symbol. And you know, they're, they're wearing the Rolex watches. You know, every Vietnamese man is successful because he wears the Rolex watches and lives in a house in Mel Pitas. You know, uh, you know, they all want that big, they all drive Mercedes. Right? But, but at, the, at the time when you were in that world and you would make friends with some of these guys and got to know them they probably were not bad guys right like they were wonderful guys wonderful guys this. one guy sat down there he saw my name was my undercover name is tom we're sitting there in the vietnamese place that sounds they eat he's looking around he goes he saw a couple of police officers come in you know, he knew them. they were guys with plain clothes san jose cops i knew they were cops you know uh because guys over here are police officers I'm going, they are, you know, that's kind of a surprise, you know, I, but I do, you know, because they sat down and a couple of uniform cops came to talk to him. Uh, he says, Tommy, you got to take this as a business. You don't take anything personal. This is about a money man. He goes, how can I explain? Because you're very Americanized. He goes, these things are illegal. That's what I make. He goes, it's like the difference between Ford and Chevrolet. You can imagine that. They're like the competition. It kind of down on me then. It's not a criminal to be a gangster. It's all about making wealth and money. This is just their way of doing it very fast. Because a lot of these guys were not educated. They didn't have no BA. A lot of these guys, you know, this generation of Vietnam, they came straight out of the streets to Vietnam. You know? Some of the guys don't even have high school diplomas. Uh, so without that, we're going to get get ahead in the United States, right? right. Uh, besides working at, 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 at a Vietnamese restaurant or something like that. You know? uh, so he told me that kind of puts the logic in me. Don't think they're good guys and bad guys. They're trying to get after you. Don't know. Think the difference between Chevrolet and Ford. They're the competition, and they're going to make you and I very rich. 
Because if it wasn't illegal, you and I would have no money. You know, if drugs wasn't illegal, how are we going to make money? You know, they're not in. They weren't into robbing stores or stick them up. You know, where you got to shoot people. These guys were very professional. Uh, it's incredible how much professional they were. Um, I dealt with. On some Heroin. level, did you did you feel like a kinship with these guys in the in the operation that you were doing? No, because it's business, and uh, what it is is you are, they invited me into their house, Damn. eat dinner with their family, Damn. went to the beach with them. I mean, family stuff, new wow. kids, but it's nothing personal. It's business. FBI was very interesting. They had they checked on me. The headquarters of FBI. Uh, Quantico would come and call my handler, the, the agent I was working with. Hey, check up on this guy. Is he okay? Every few months, make sure I didn't go to the dark side. You know, because <laughs> there's so much money and there's so much. We walk into a bar in um, San Jose. We're let in. We're sitting at tables. They clear tables for us. They knew people. Who got I did a drug deal in Boston and. We went to the a, a Chinese restaurant. It was a two, I remember it was a two-story restaurant. I, was, I forgot what the name was. Real famous one in Boston. Standing room only to, to try to get in. You know, place was packed. People outdoors waiting for the table. We walk in. He goes talk to the maitre d. But I don't know what he said. Guy next thing we're let upstairs. They give us a room by ourselves. They block it off with those you know the partitions for our own table. And we had no reservations. He is locked up just like that. Uh, that's power for the power and you know, everything's paid cash and you know they want to fly they want to treat me good time you know i'll send there eating food and you know bought a bottle of cognac for 800 bucks back then which was you know that course that's that um someone with the crown head on the stuff i got it's called Corvorsier something you know i'm not a cognac drinker you know um to me it tastes like cough syrup but i had to do the i had to teach i had to be taught how to drink Cognac, my, my, one of my FBI guys, they were laughing at me. He goes, what do you mean you're Vietnamese? You don't know how to drink Cognac. Yeah. I go, man, I drink bourbon. <laughs> I'm, I'm a vodka bourbon kind of guy, you know. Did it so, Did it ever get scary? Did it ever get, like, life-threatening? It got some, sometimes it got life-threatening, but I never got scared by it. I don't know why. It was just, it was kind of exciting, you know. Uh, or did you know that, like, behind you, there's, like, the, nobody. the wall of God? You know, you got the military, you got... I had faith in my own self. Uh, and the FBI had faith. Even if we had to cover to, to, to help you out, they're way on the outside. It takes a minute to get in there. And the party's over, right? Uh, <laughs> you had to know your surroundings and when you carry a gun, when you don't carry a gun. Not all the time I carry a gun. You know, people think, oh, you're undercover, you carry a gun. No, because if you go to somebody's house having dinner with their... Can't bring a gun. Wife and kids, why are you bringing a gun? You know who brings guns all the time? Cops. You go to the beach, you're gonna carry a gun to the beach? Yeah. Who brings the guns to the beach? Cops. Cops. <laughs> right? Yeah. And you know, when they trust me with uh, the FBI trusted me so much with things I did. Uh, this one guy out of San Jose, that even other FBI agents question, you sure you're gonna trust a local? Because there's also a little, you know, suspicion with locals because you know fbi is also the ones in charge of going after police corruption when i went back to boston there was a little bit of a wall there and, and when because this uh fbi from san jose trusted me so much with everything i had an id card i could walk into the fbi office for god's sakes they gave me they made me a u.s marshal deputized me a u.s marshal 
So I have law enforcement powers through the 50 states and their territories. You know, big responsibilities. I had to do a background through the FBI because, you know, walk you walk the FBI, they don't let you go anywhere until you fast background. You know, you can't do business like that. It's put me in a room. I can't walk around in the office, uh, get coffee, whatever, go to the bathroom. And so there's a level of trust. And then, you know, being scared, I really wasn't scared that much, to be honest with you. You know, Fred's Mike goes, you're, you're weird. <laughs> Kenny, it was a rush. You know, Kenny, that's my life. It was yeah, the rush. And you're doing something nobody else did. Uh, and you're going after really bad people. You're going after the top level guy. You're not going after the foot soldier. You're going after guys that actually altered the path of the criminal behavior. Uh, we did this case. We ended up with 23 federal indictments throughout yeah, the United sure. States. We did search warrants in two different uh, coasts, East Coast and West Coast. You know, half a dozen search warrants. We seized over a half a million dollars of money. Uh, we seized drug guns. We put a lot of people incarcerated. They didn't get pled out and dropped charges. They all got convicted. We did real time. Uh, we changed the way people were going back then, you know, just going to free fall. Nobody was, was checking on the Vietnamese. Because the Vietnamese, don't, they're not flashy. They just did a lot of criminal activities, you know. You don't see them wearing big gold chains rolling down the street with the yeah. music blaring up, you know, real loud and saying loud and proud of a gangster. They're, and the Vietnamese guys I met that dealt, drug, that dealt drugs and that dealt, uh, they introduced me to these guys who were dealing in stolen computer chip. I dealt with a guy out of Korea, a guy named Jim Cho, a Korean businessman, multi-millionaire kind of guy. Uh, he's buying computers for me for cash. Uh, he walked up on a computer deal with me with uh, $500,000 in a briefcase, $100 bills. First time in my life I picked up a briefcase that was heavy with money. <laughs> You know, a big legal briefcase, big old box looking thing. Damn, I never had money that was heavy. <laughs> and, you know, and those are kind of deals that you're actually going after big boys. We did things that were, they ended up, they said it was the largest Asian organized crime case ever done in the history of the FBI back then. Holy shit. And they gave me a, some fancy medal and stuff, you know. They gave me the best they can do with me. They can't give me a medal on because I didn't die. That's what the guy told me. He's laughing at me, you know. But it gave well, me a, an FBI Meritorious Achievement Medal. Um, at that time, 1994, he goes, Sorry, you're only one of three that's ever gotten this as a civilian. You know, you'll never meet the other guys who got it because this is one out of three. And you won't know them, they don't know you because, you know, I don't know where the two guys are. Um, but for a Vietnamese guy, it was a wonderful experience. And actually, when you're taking down these guys, uh, it sent shock money back into the Vietnamese community. Uh, it really did. I came home, kissed my wife, everything's over. Uh, she was kind of interesting. And, and a, a little small story at the end of this operation, we're getting ready to take everybody down. They want to protect, right? So we go down to do the big takedown. And we went to jail. So they said, uh, we're going to sequester you for a week, make sure there's no hit on you and there's no retaliations and stuff like that. So they sent me with an FBI team. They went and picked up my wife at work. He told her boss, I'm coming on these two FBI's, you can pick up my wife. Uh, brought there and got my kids, and they whisked us off to uh, Monterey for a whole week. Gave me uh, fancy money and budget and everything. We stayed at a real nice hotel right there on uh, Canary Road. Treated like, you know, fine whining and dining. The only difference is, she goes, why are those two guys following us everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> They're my security guard, FBI agents. <laughs> so it was real business, you know. We, we're, we are here 
um, shout out to your daughter, Ashley, who's been on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And because um, you segued with, into your wife, and I want to hear the story because Ashley is half Vietnamese, half black. And so Ashley's mother is black, and I want to hear the story of uh, how you guys met. We met when I worked at East Palo Alto, and she went to, came here to be a dispatcher with. Father back in that, she's very, you know, shout out to her. Very, very smart woman. Uh, she came out of uh, South Central LA once on a full ride, academic ride to UCLA. For being a black woman back in, you know, 1977, which is very rare. It's intense. She went to UCLA and graduated in theater arts, but also at UCLA, she was a cheerleader at UCLA. And shout out to her at the same time, nothing to do with academic. Her and a couple of friends decided to go try out for the Rams, LA Rams. Oh, shit. Cheerleader for a year for the LA Rams. No kidding. Yeah, it was kind of cool. You know, I, I heard about it afterwards. She tried with a couple of friends and she's the only one who got picked. Uh, she chilly for the Rams. It's something to do. She was one of, you know, there I think it was one of her friends went. She got to pick him. So she came out of UCLA with a, with a bachelor's in theater arts and she moved up to San Francisco at the time. Uh, they got working at uh, Menlo Park Police. And I was working at the East Palo Alto Police Cop, young rookie cop, you know, literally my first couple of months on the job. Uh, so I met Jan. And she was seemed like the nicest little buddy. And you know, we started going out, different things, you know. I go, well, some of these guys are hitting up on it. I go, well, they didn't work out too well. Why don't they do that? I'm like, you know, being Vietnamese, I'm going to sit back and watch. I'm going to watch everybody's failure, so I won't do that again. You know? <laughs> so I'm going to try something different. I invited her to coffee, which is kind of weird. You know, I invited her to go see art exhibits, you know, things that I like to do. Well, wait, let, let, let's, let's, let's pause right there because um, this is a really weird situation, which is, she studied theater or drama at UCLA, right? Yeah. You have an art background. You yes, studied I was a art. fine arts. In fine arts. It's a totally respect. different from Vietnamese. Totally different from Vietnamese, but yeah. totally different from police people. Right. Think about it, right? So you two are both in this, like, again, rigid structure. Artsy, artsy world. Yeah, but both studied art and, and, and theater at the, co- at the university level. And you guys find yourself, I mean, it's weird when you think about like, you know, the, the, the way the universe is sort of like bending towards, you know, our, our personalities sometimes and then how we attract and meet the same people within a, a, like the police world. It's just unheard of. It was because everything we did before police world was totally different from the, the natural path of being a police. Right. She didn't want to be a career dispatcher. So that when she came moved up to San Francisco, that was one of the you know higher paying jobs that offered benefits and you know medical things that you have to think about. You know, being a theater arts major, she's working you know small medium job trying to get a bigger job. You know, she had to struggle. She goes, well, why am I struggling? I go to be a Menlo Park dispatcher and they give me a, you know a retirement four hundred one k with medical and everything, and they pay pretty decent. And me, I got into police work in college. I met these two guys that were sitting next to me in art history. And let me tell you, that's the hardest class I ever took in my life. <laughs> I go, oh my God, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to look at a couple of and I'm going to ace this thing. Oh no. You start studying, writing papers about them. I get, what did I get myself into? I studied more for that one class than all my other classes combined. Damn. I only got a B. <laughs> but I sat next to these two guys and we started talking. They're regular, regular Joes, you know, they're a little older than me, older than me, like they're, you know, 
you know, mid twenties, you know, late twenties, you know, and I'm, you know, that's how I was in my, you know, early twenties. And they say, well, no, Why you, you ever thought about being a policeman? I go, I go, oh, hell no. I came from Berkeley, man. I used to ride around my motorcycle with a t-shirt that said question authority, yeah. you know, or his t-shirt, you know, um, I had no aspiration. He goes, he goes, I think you'd be a real good policeman. I go, why well, do you know about this? He goes, we're cops. I go, no way. They told me they were uh, San Francisco PD cops. And they said, y'all think you got a personality for it? Then I went to work for the campus uh, university uh, police department. They don't want a student job they give you. They just send you to wherever on campus. I worked in a parking garage. I did, the, money. I did the same thing for a year. I was uh, security at USC because uh, uh, yeah. the the boss at that the security head uh, was like, "Oh, he found out that I was a Marine." And yeah, yeah. like same thing, same s- scenario. Yeah, and SF State Police, they found out I was Marine, and you know, and everything like that. And the guy that's in charge of the parking area, he's gonna be trustworthy. He's where he squared away. I was still in the reserve back then. You know? Yeah, and so I worked at the parking garage handling all the money. I did real good with it. I made sure they didn't get ripped off. And I told them, you know, hey, these guys are. Who the students were ripping people off, you know, uh, stealing money. And this guy named Sergeant Nick Bennett, he goes, he really gave me a formal, you know, offer. He goes, I'm getting ready to form a department in East Palo Alto. And I'm thinking, Palo Alto, okay, going down there to be Stanford, you know, good looking women to go, I'm all in. <laughs> I kind of left that East Palo Alto, you know, I didn't, I didn't hear it right. And, and East Palo Alto was the total, you know, inner city ghetto, highest murder rate in the United States back then. Total drug dealing capital of California, Northern California. Me, I'm thinking, I'm gonna walk down there, I'm gonna check out Stanford University, watch out the co-eds downtown, drink coffee, did that kickback job. I went to work at East Palo Alto, I applied, they, they hired me. He kind of pushed it through, he goes, hey, there's a kid here, he's bilingual Vietnamese, which we had none in the, in the Bay Area at that time. Um, he's ex, you know, he's a Marine. He's got a USA. Everything worked out good for him. And he got to be hired where I went. Um, I first started there as a police service technician doing photography right up my alley. I was a fine arts major in photography. So I wasn't sure I'd be a cop yet. You know? I was looking at, let me check out this, what it is to work for a police before I raise my right hand. So I went down there for like three, four months. And then they had me gave me an offer. What do you think? He goes, yeah, this is, seems like I wanted to do this. And away I went. They sent me to Oakland Police Academy. And and that's where you met Jan in Palo East Palo Alto. Yeah, I came back as a police officer. I was an East Palo Alto cop. She was a Menlo Park dispatcher. And Menlo Park at that time dispatched for East Palo Alto. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Uh, because East Palo Alto didn't have its own dispatchers. It's very expensive, so they had Menlo Park. They had a contract. So I would go up there and you know, get warrants. Back they didn't have the computer warrants on the computer. You had to go up to the police station and pull actually warrants out of a file to go serve people and look for bad guys and everything. Well, they say, hey, we're looking for this guy who did a murder. We need to come up here and get the paperwork so you can have it in your car. And you had to go a little manually do it. You know, now it's all you know, computer and everything. You got to look at these are the days when we didn't have a kind of stuff. We had a radio and a police car. That was it. No computer, no digital, none of that fancy stuff they have today. You had a radio in your brain. That's all you had in the police car. Uh, and so I started meeting her, and you know, we started becoming friends first. Uh, and, you know, we went out to different things. I guess I wooed her over, you know. We were still friends, and I left for San Leandro, and then I came back for a dispatch banquet and stuff, you know, big dispatch banquet, because the county has a dispatch bank. We started going out, and, you know, seems she seemed like the right fit. Um, kind of shocking to my parents, because they didn't know I was a 
I mean, dating at a, you know, a black woman, you know. So I bring her to my my father at that time. It's came, had, uh, came over to the United States. You know, I'd been here a few years. I'd sponsored him to come over here. Um, he's working down at uh, Hewitt Packard as an engineer. He redid his whole life, went to school, left. He was a, a stud of a soldier, but that was wartime. Uh, he had to come over, you know, retrain himself. Here he's in his 40s trying to do everything all over again. Pretty badass to become an engineer at HP in those days. Yeah, yeah. And it's all training, and he spoke English, I think, because he worked a lot of weird weird operations in Vietnam as a soldier. Uh, so I brought her to dinner. My, wife, my, my dad, I told my dad, hey, you know, I'm just like, you know, I'm dating a black woman. He kind of smiled, you know, because he's very open-minded. So why don't you come down for our family dinner? Because on his side of family, I met, the, you know, my aunt on that side, and all his friends and cousins. So I walk into Palo Alto to a big Chinese restaurant. I walk in it with Jan. <laughs> and every mouth, you go, you know, they open the mouth. I told my aunt, hey, close your mouth, you're drooling. <laughs> She's like, you know, couldn't believe what I sat down with. And my my dad's giggling, like, oh, you set, you set these people up. You didn't tell them. <laughs> and then I introduced her to my mother. They didn't get along at all. Oh, shit. Yeah. Because she was black or because mm -hmm. your mother? Yeah, my mother's, yeah, my mom has a racist tinder. Her side of family is racist. Uh, I'll tell you that straight up. My aunts and uncles from that side. Uh, a lot of them are. Introduced her to my grandmother, and my grandmother, my mother's side, told my mom, What's wrong with time? He couldn't do better in that kind of attitude, you know? There's something wrong with your son. You know, he's kind of weird. Uh, that's just the way it was. Uh, but I have my own life. I live my own. Day. I told Jan all the time. My father's side, you can meet my mom's side. And my and Jan felt the vibes right off the bat. My mom don't like me. Now I was a, a white girl or Vietnamese, be all in, you know. Uh, but I go, I didn't, I don't care. This is my life, you know. Uh, so I had my, we had our wedding, and man, nobody showed up except for my grandfather, my father, and my mom. That was it. God damn. And they, got, and they all got invitations. Everybody got invites and nobody showed up, but mom, dad, and grandma. Yeah. And so I understood, the, I understood the message, but it didn't affect me because I go, I'm living my life. You ain't paying my bills. Never got anything from you guys. You know, I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, Are you guys cool with them now? That part of the family today? No. To this day, I rarely talk to that side of the family. I talked to some of my younger uncles. Who at that time were not in America yet, you know. Uh, some of them just came more recent, or uh, they were in, like they were younger then, so they they were basically you know been told by the elders don't go to the wedding kind of deal underneath, you know, kind of behind crazy. the back door kind of stuff. That's some know? crazy shit when you think about it, right? It's just it like, is. It's some crazy stuff, man. You know, and yeah, and you just think that it's really white folks that are prejudiced, yeah. but it's like, oh yeah. my God, like Vietnamese are very prejudiced. Vietnamese are look at look at the Vietnamese mixed kids in Vietnam. They used to call them boy damn, boy damn, people of dirt. They never call that to a, 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 a an Amerasian that's white, Amerasian black in Vietnam too. When I came over there, they were calling them boy damn. Then you see the kids, you know, they, they couldn't get jobs in Vietnam after the fall of '75. They'll give me a job, like you know, a toilet cleaner or something like that, you know. I never let that affect me. And Jan turned out to be one of the smartest person they knew. I mean, she's a businesswoman. You know, she's director of contracts for a biopharm, senior director of contracts for a biopharmaceutical company. I mean, she's smart. You know? 
I always tell her she's the brains of the outfit, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm just a mo- blue collar worker, right? Police officer, you know. But and we raised two wonderful kids. We taught them with open arms, and we always thought our, our attitude was, we're going to send them and put our life moving a community at the best public school. Because both of us don't believe in private school because it's too narrow minded. Yeah. And also, I got a crash start. I'm a taxpayer. said, why the hell do I got to pay to go to school? When, you know, being, and my Vietnamese side kicked in, it's the F word. It's free, man. <laughs> you know, and if I go to a nice community with a school, it's a tax deduction too for the house. I go, man, double free, you know? You know, when people first meet <clears throat> Ashley, uh-huh. And when I first met Ashley in person, you can feel the warmth, right? You can feel the warmth of who she is. And the warmth of somebody that you feel in the beginning, it's typically, my experience is that the parents have given this person so much love, you know, this child, so much, an abundance of care, an abundance of love, that the child radiates this warmth you know, and I don't know what her brother's like, but when I met Ashley, I was like, there's no way her parents are divorced. They're, you know, just like kind of like that feeling that, or if they are divorced, they did a great job co-parenting or, you know, it's intact, right? That sort of that warmth is, is there with Ashley and the job that you both did, you know, having her um, work in the music and the arts and, and everything. I mean, you, audience can can listen to that episode with Ashley and you know you guys did a great job and I'm so happy that you know you guys went through that sort of like that uh, chaos with the Vietnamese family on that side but lived it and survived it well we came out there and our mentality is we're going to set up the best school possible so we moved to a city called San Ramon phenomenal school district where they boast 93% of their students go to college, which is pretty amazing. You know? This is a public school, high academia. Uh, and we figure we can teach her culture at home. I can't teach her the three R's, you know. The three R's are at school and her friends are in her school. Alone. Pick and choose what she wants, as long as it's not bad. Like, you know, she's on drugs or gangbang, none of that kind of stuff. We're going to let her have free reign, what she wants to study, what she wants to do for a living, both our kids. Now, one of the kids tell me, Dad, I want to be a bank robber. No, we're not going that way. <laughs> I'll interfere, you know. Well, I want to be a gangster. I want to go out there, you know, have 20 kids by seven different men. Oh, let's talk. <laughs> but otherwise, we gave it free reign. Ashley has wanted to sing and be an entertainer shoot, since kindergarten, you know. And funny thing about her, she, she probably embarrassed her. Here she is. My wife and her, uh, uh, practice on this big song for one of those Christmas, uh, you know, performance, like preschool. And she's all excited. She's in her owl's eye, that's it, right? Beautiful blue owl's eye. And she's singing the song by heart. Everything. She knew it all in there. She's all that. And then she gets on the stage and she looks around. And instead of singing the song, she's crying. And just flapping her front of her owl's eye. And we go, what the heck's going on? Turns out lady goes, I thought we were singing there. I was going to help there. We have her as a solo. I didn't expect all these other people on the stage with me. <laughs> a typical Ashley, you know. She's that always had that strong mind. She didn't scare her nothing, you know. She's one of those people, I think, her personality, she can make friends with Pet Rock. Yeah. You know, yeah. And be her best friend. 
you know, I, I, I stumbled on to her song Rise Again, and I mm -hmm. talk about that all the time. And um, this song Rise Again, it was funny because I didn't realize that that was sort of like a, a song that she had been contracted to do for a bread company. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes sense. I mean, when you looking back, but I had always thought that this is a, a, a black Vietnamese, Vietnamese black woman singing this song Rise Again, which is very apt for like a community that fell 50 years ago so when i listen to the songs when i listen to the lyrics of that song it reminds me it it attaches me to a different story it, it, there's right. a different meaning to to rise again so when she performed it at our ted party a few weeks ago it was just you know knocked the socks out of everybody because she can just you and know and i support both our kids equally literally 50 50 there's no different whatever path of life you go to whether it's you could slow to grow or whatever, you know, she went to college and she wanted to pursue the theater arts and singing and musical career. You know, she's a typical struggling artist. You know, she didn't hit big at 17. She had to struggle. She lived in a converted garage, for God's sakes, you know, but we never blinked an eye. We didn't tell her to go, okay, you've had your fun. Now go be a businessman or something. Right. Business we support her. We used to go to every performance she's ever done in her life since she was as far as she could perform. Wow. We used to go down to LA just for one performance, drive down there, drive home by Sunday because we never missed a performance. We didn't do all of them, but you know, like five or one form, but every new performance she did, we came down at least one of them yeah. during that time, whatever she's doing, whatever she And some of those performances she did, for God's sakes, were just minutes, but we went down to see her. Some of them was a long time, you know, but some of them watched this whole musical or whatever, and she's on the stage for a blink of but we were there. Uh, we did that all the way from grade school to high school to college, you know, even to adult life. Um, to where now, Jan always taught her, you know, being a, an African-American, people are look at you black, not Vietnamese. Right. Because her color is going to, you know, they look at you, you're going to be black, you know. Uh, so whatever you do, you got to be twice as good out in the community. You can expect out of black just to make it even. So twice as good as even, so you got even better at that. You know, whatever you do, whatever you have in life, just keep that in mind. They're going to look at you as an African-American woman, you know, uh, at the end of the day. Um, I know the Vietnamese side has totally taken her in, but that's just recently. That's not been all our lives, you know, this generation. And, and that's a new development for us yeah. here in L.A. too. Uh, in the last five years, there's a proliferation of artists and Vietnamese people that are taking, you know, uh, L.A. LA entertainment scene by storm. You know, there's... Big productions here, film, right. music. Right. Yeah, we're you know the the president of Billboard Entertainment is a Vietnamese guy, Mike Van. Right. You know, and so you know what? They've always been there. You just never given a chance. Think about it, right? Yep. They've always been there. They never given a chance to hit mainstream. But, you know, the Vietnamese always hit their community, you know, like Orange County. All the Vietnamese big, big singers that are known in Orange County, but outside, before recently, they, nobody knew. Them. Nobody. Yeah. But now it's like it's it's turned turn wow. up. Yeah. And so. You know, for her to do all these things, and she's very, to me, we're very proud of her. You're doing it on your own. You did things that, I look back, I go, why would we sit there and tell her to do anything else when Jan and I took our own path yeah. and did our own thing? I mean, wouldn't that kind of be hypocritical? Do as I say, not do as I do? Yeah. yeah. So we supported her, and the same goes for my son, who went through childhood and early adult. He had a, you know, a rough time at it, because here he is, and your know, dad's a police. And I never pushed law enforcement, but I was kind of strict, you know, with them things. He's a boy, right? Yeah. You know? But we let him go his own way. And now he's a school teacher teaching in Montessori uh, in Oakland. 
and um, he specializes in autistic kids. Uh, so he took his own path, what he wanted to do. Uh, we let him, and we guide him. And you know, sometimes we say, don't do this. Just like Ashley, you got to find yourself. I'm not going to force it, yeah. but you got to do something. You can't sit at home and play video games for that one. I'm not that kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. You got to go out and try to make a career. And we, we give them nudges. We don't force anybody. We're not going to say, God dang it, we're going to kick you out. We're going to cut you off because whatever. And both of those kids have friends and, you know, close friends, faraway friends from different cultures. And I don't know who comes in the house sometimes and walk in the door. As long as the kid is a nice kid, you know, it's all good. I think the kid is not a good kid because some of the things he does, I'll let him know, hey, man, I don't want this guy in the house or I don't appreciate hanging out because these are, and I tell him just these are the reasons why. You know, and we let them know, you know, because I said so. so. Yeah. Ty, thank you so much for, you know, this is a a treat. You know, we've gotten to speak a lot to each other in the last few weeks because of, you know, the way this is uh, set up with with us. And I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we are, I am very curious about your mother and i know that you know the work that she's done she does so i hope that we can get three generations of your family onto the podcast to talk about uh, very interesting uh, lives well you know what you need to do have ashley smooth with my noise so, <laughs> all right she can well, do a lot better than i am and, and tell, tell her you know in her own words why you need to do this yeah. wonderful i will ty I mean, thank you ashley so much. Gets you do anything for you yeah. so. <laughs> thanks again ty i appreciate it take care all right all right thank you Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts.